You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Some of you know I teach a seventh grade leadership class. It's one hour a week on Mondays, and as part of the curriculum this semester, we've been, I've been reading When Helping Hurts. It's a book about uh, addressing the issues of poverty in our world. Uh, the kids aren't reading it. I'm just sort of teaching the concepts from it. And one of the major concept is that we can help in such a way that it actually ends up hurting the people that we're trying to help. And they, they illustrate this, this dynamic or this point just by telling the story of the World Bank. Uh, the World Bank was formed at the end of World War II to finance the rebuilding of Europe, uh, of war-torn Europe. And they were amazingly successful. They, they just threw a ton of money into the problem, and they saw a lot of fruit from it. Uh, the economies in Europe began to grow and, and flourish really quickly in a, in a very relative, relatively short amount of time. Well, as other forms of aid became available, uh, there was some competition, in, and the World Bank began to sort of shift their focus. And so, like in the 70s, they started to shift their focus to helping low-income countries. Uh, they wanted to sort of build and sustain economies in those parts of the world as well. And so, they did just what came natural to them. They did what they did before. They just poured a ton of money into it. Yet they didn't see the same kinds of results. And it was perplexing because on the surface of things, it kind of looked like the same situation. You know, India, for instance, looked, you know, in some ways similar to war-torn France. There were refugees. There was hunger and poverty. Uh, there was a lack of infrastructure and social services. Uh, their economies were weak. Yet, even though they did the exact same things to treat what appeared to be the same symptoms... Something was markedly different. It wasn't working. You see, the World Bank, like most of us, thought about poverty in strictly in terms of, or at least predominantly in terms of, physical and material deficiency. This is why that we thought a bank could solve the problem of poverty. But it didn't work. Money didn't solve the problem and doesn't solve that problem. In the 90s, the World Bank decided to consult with the experts on poverty. They talked to people who were actually poor. And they asked them this specific question. They asked over 60,000 people from 60 different low-income nations this question. What is poverty? Now, the, the answers came out. It's like a three-volume series now. And they got a lot of feedback on that. And things like hunger and lack of money, those were a given. But what also came out over and over and over were things like isolation, shame, inferiority, not feeling needed, not feeling heard. See, the problem of poverty goes way beyond the material dimension. Poverty is psychological, emotional, relational, spiritual. If you just throw money at it, it doesn't work. You see, the way that we define poverty determines everything about the strategies we'll use or the solutions we'll look for to try to address that particular issue. And so this book just forces us to ask, what is poverty? Who are the poor? What can be done about this? Now, those of you that listen to the scripture reading are like, wait, did we get the right text for today? This is not a sermon on poverty. But I say all this because it, it offers us some insight into our text today. The text today is, is about sin. And most of us, especially those of us that go to church, we think we've got a handle on sin. We understand what sin is. But we're the same people who thought we understood what poverty was. 
Uh, we tend to have kind of a one-dimensional view of sin, just like we do of poverty, and it's just much more layered than that. Uh, whenever we're looking at poverty or the problem of sin, there's, there's two crucial mistakes we can make. And the first one is that we end up dealing just with the symptoms, right? So I see a kid who looks malnourished and I just throw food at it, but there's a whole system of cultural issues underneath that, an underlying illness that's manifesting itself in, in his hunger, right? So we can just deal with the symptoms when we think about sin as well. The other crucial mistake we can make is even when we try to make a diagnosis, we make the wrong one and we end up treating the wrong thing. We end up, you know, putting the wrong medication onto the illness, And so, at a personal level, when we look at our world and what's not working around us in the world, when we look at what's not working in our own lives, we make these mistakes. See, when we look at the mistakes we keep making personally, our our relational woes, our emotional struggles, our tendency is just to treat the symptoms of those those things, to sort of medicate the symptoms. And even when we try to figure out the diagnosis, very often, without even knowing it, we get the diagnosis wrong altogether. And we're, we're perplexed, we're frustrated why it's not working. You know, God designed the world to work. I mean, God designed the world to be characterized by this peace and harmony and, and for everything to be aligned according to His will and His purposes. But sin threw off the alignment, it disrupted the harmony. And because of sin, we are all estranged from God and disoriented in this world that he's made for us. And what Paul's saying in this section of Romans, uh, which began in chapter 1 and is now sort of concluding in, in our text today in Romans 3, is that the underlying illness for everything that doesn't work in life is sin. The problem, the issue, what's at the bottom of it all? is sin. This is Paul's diagnosis. Look at uh, verse 9. Just open up to chapter 3. We'll be there all day. In verse 9, he says, are we any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. This is the illness. We are all under sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a few dimensions of that that we're going to look at today because I think it'll help us get our minds around it. It means that we're guilty. Uh, It means that we're corrupt. And it means we deserve punishment. And possibly it means you should have gone to ACL today instead of here. Uh, It doesn't sound like very good news. But uh, there's actually really good news in this. Because if we get the diagnosis right, then there's hope for a cure. Right? I mean, if we really understand the problem, then we'll be able to embrace... The solution. I told you at the beginning of this, when we started this series in Romans, I told you that it was about making you new, that it wasn't going to be about cosmetics, it wasn't going to be about looking good on the outside, it was going to be about a deep cleanse, a total renovation of your life. I don't know if you used to watch Extreme Home Makeover. I did, and I wanted to cry like a baby almost every time I watched it. Um, you know, there were a few times, though, where I would click it on late, and I would just see the finished thing, the, the after, the reveal of the new house. And it was always kind of cool. I was like, oh, that's cool. But it was never emotional, like if I had watched the whole thing. You see, what gets my heartstrings is knowing the before. It's knowing the depths of the situation that people had, were in and what they had come from. And that helped me appreciate this, this new great house that's being revealed. 
This is the before. Paul says in Romans 3, 1, 17, the righteousness of God has been revealed. This is the new you that is available. But if you don't understand the wrath of God that's being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which is what we've been talking about for a month, you won't rejoice in the after. You won't even know that it's there. You won't be able to embrace the solution. And so let's talk about the before. First thing, we're all guilty. That is, sin affects everyone. Its scope is universal. And I don't mean that we're guilty kind of in the emotional feeling sense. I mean it in the legal sense. Uh, We stand before the judge of the universe. The evidence is set forth and we are declared guilty. The word that Paul has been using all along is the word unrighteousness. It just means it has to do with right standing, in this case, not having right standing. And what he's saying is that to be under sin, first of all, means that we are not right with God. Look at verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Nobody? No, not one. So clearly Paul's trying to make a point. Like if you add up all the people in the history of the world who could possibly stand before God without any charge of guilt, that total comes to zero exactly. Nobody. Not one. This is the case he's been making all along. He he puts out the righteousness of the God that's revealed for those who have faith in Jesus, and then he spends the better part of three chapters showing us precisely why we need that righteousness from God, because no one has any righteousness of their own that counts before God. Sin is, um, it's a tricky sickness, because the symptoms vary. It doesn't look the same in all people in all places, India and France and you and me. And so Paul has given us these three categories, these three ways that unrighteousness can look, and they're very different from each other. And you'll remember we started in Romans 1 talking about the irreligious relativist. The relativist is the person who diagnoses, really doesn't even diagnose it, the problem, because they don't think there is a problem. Sin's not a problem because sin doesn't exist. And so the relativist suppresses the truth about God so that he can do what he wants. That's what he, he feels like. He feels like he's free in that regard. But the truth is, is the, he's actually enslaved to whatever he worships in the place of God. And so for the irreligious person, when good things become ultimate things, which is inevitable, they ruin you. Now, sin doesn't always present itself in such obvious ways. It doesn't always look like irreligious relativism. Sometimes it looks kind of ni- nice and tidy. You can be thoroughly sinful, but not think of yourself in that way. And so very often when we're trying to look at what's wrong in the world, the answer is always external to us, not internal. And so Paul gives us a couple more categories of unrighteousness. We came to the moralist in chapter 2. The moralist diagnosis is basically, yes, sin is the problem. Their sin, that's the problem. You see, the moralist thinks that if if everybody would just, you know, sort of live by his rules, then the world would work the way that it's supposed to. But the problem is, is that he doesn't even live by his rules. 
His judgmentalism, his self-centeredness, his lack of self-awareness only contributes to the dysfunction of the world. There was a newspaper in London had asked for essays to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton famously submitted an essay, and it just said, I am. A moralist could never write that, because it's always out there. And then finally, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, we came to this sort of religious legalism. And the religious person misdiagnoses the problem. Uh, He says that the problem is, is that people don't obey the law. And so the solution then is to obey the law. And the religious person inevitably just ends up dealing with the symptoms of the sickness. Because they're just trying to make it all look right out here. Constantly trying to purify water that's coming forth from a bitter well. Just can't do it. So sin deceives us into thinking that it's not real. That it's not in me. Or that I can deal with it on my own. But Paul is saying, no, the sin sickness has come upon humanity. Everyone has it. And the fatality rate is 100% because the wages of sin is death. We're going to see in Romans 6. The symptoms, Paul says, are these. No one does good, not even one. So getting the right diagnosis is important for a lot of reasons. Uh, I just want to draw out one application that I think will be helpful to some of you. Some of you are looking into the Christian faith. You're trying to understand what the heck we're talking about. You're trying to figure out what it means to know God and, and to live your life according to the Bible because there's part of you that wants to do that. And so here's the thing about looking into the Christian faith. Um, it's impossible to come to that to that question without any kind of assumptions or any kind of bias or any kind of preconceived understanding of how it works. We all do that. We all have some sort of sense of how this thing works. And so to see Paul's diagnosis that there is this universal guilt helps you understand how it works. See, because some of you, your default sense is that the problem is essentially relational. You know, it's like, well, if I get in here and I treat people well and And these people like me and I like them. Like, if I'm in with God's people, then I'm in with God. Some of you think that the problem is essentially ethical. If I just kind of clean up my life, then God will accept me. Some of you think it's basically confessional. You know, if if I believe the right things, I accept sort of the core basic truths that they're saying, then God will take me. And, And it doesn't really matter what I do with my life after that. Ticket to heaven, punched. See, there's all different kinds of assumptions or ways that we think it works. And it's all essentially the same thing. It's all a a self-salvation project. These are all just different types of of self-righteousness. You know, filling out the resume so that God will have to take us. But that's not how it works. Uh, What Paul is saying is not just like, you're close. You just, just a little more. He's saying, you're guilty. Everyone. Nobody is close. The solution then, the righteousness of God that he put out there in chapter 1, is what we really need. And it's not something that we achieve. It's not something we go get. It's a gift. It's something that we receive from God. We uh, talked in week 1 about the impact of this book on Martin Luther's life. 
And that is just one in a in, in chain of many throughout history. About 200 years later, uh, it changed John Wesley's life. Uh, here's the story as John Stott tells it. John Wesley's younger brother, Charles, had with some of his Oxford friends founded what came to be nicknamed the Holy Club. Look, if you have a holy club, that's your first clue that you're off, you're off in the wrong direction. <laughs> we are holy. Here's our club. Uh, in November 1729, John joined it and became its acknowledged leader. Its members engaged in sacred studies, self-examination, public and private religious exercises, and philanthropic activities, apparently hoping to win salvation by such good works. This is how they thought it worked. Then in 1735, the brothers Wesley sailed for Georgia, I don't think it's the SEC Georgia, as chaplains to the the settlers and missionaries to the Indians. Two years later, they returned in a profound disillusionment. See, they had taken this message about how it works elsewhere, and it it didn't work, Uh, which was mitigated only by their admiration for the piety and faith of some Moravians, this spiritual sect. So in in 1738, during a Moravian meeting in London, to which John Wesley had gone very unwillingly, he turned from self-confidence to faith in Christ. And what was happening was somebody was reading from Luther's introduction to Romans. And Wesley wrote about it later in his journal. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation, and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley could have never received that free gift had he kept trying to earn it. He just didn't know how it works. It works like this. The righteousness of God is revealed, bestowed, given upon all who would have faith in Christ. And so, what's not working in your life? Like, what are you frustrated about? And is it possible that you've just misdiagnosed the problem? You won't understand the solution until you understand the problem. That's the first aspect. It's legal. Humanity is universally guilty. The second aspect of sin is more personal and experiential. It has to do with the scope, not with the scope of sin, but with the depth of sin. And it's that we are corrupt. Sin has corrupted us. This is what Paul goes on to say, verse 13, the description. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, this is, this is the extent of our corruption that sin has caused. We sin with our tongues, our lips, our feet, our eyes, our way. We sin willfully. Sometimes we strike quick with venomous words. Sometimes we dump a whole boatload of bitterness on people. Sometimes we run to sin. Like we we are eager to get there. Stepping on people in our anger and our self-centeredness. You know, left to ourselves, what Paul is saying is we forge a path in life of ruined relationships and regret 
That's what he's saying. That's the extent of it. Sin not only affects everyone, it affects every part of everyone. It's pervasive in its influence. What Paul is describing here is often called the doctrine of total depravity. And the reason I bring that up is because it's a doctrine that is often misunderstood. Most of us tend to think of that to mean I am totally evil in every way. Like everything I do is all evil and wicked. And there's something about that doesn't ring true with reality, with our experience. And it's a good thing because total depravity doesn't mean that. Uh, It means that every part of me is affected or tainted by sin. Jesus said, put a little leaven and and it ruins the whole dough, the whole lump of dough. Sin has worked its way in me and has contaminated every part of me. Uh, Ray Ortland puts it this way. He says, we're not under sin in the sense that sin holds us down against our wills, but rather sin has seeped into our wills, into our good intentions, into our self-images, and even into our morality. The Bible actually affirms that all kinds of people do good things. Jesus said, even a wicked dad knows how to give good gifts to his kids. In Romans 2, Paul said that the Gentiles who don't have the law, don't even have the definition of what good is, by nature, do the works of the law. Right? So, we, we are all created in the image of God, and as such, we have some sense of what good is, and some basic desire to do good. And by nature, we do things that are good. And so what does Paul mean here that no one is good? Well, Paul has in mind a certain quality of goodness that stands up in the court's room before God. For God not only sees our actions, but he looks deep into the motivations of our heart. And so the kind of goodness that Paul is talking about is a goodness that is oriented toward God. It's obedience to God's standard. Its goal is to bring glory to God. It's motivated by faith in Christ. Uh, If you're a parent and you have kids, this is a speech you have all the time in your house. Your kids will do the thing you ask them to do, you know, with a terrible attitude, and they'll count it as obedience. And you'll be like, no, that's not obedience. Obedience is doing the right thing right away with a happy heart. It's like right thing, check. Right away, close. Happy heart, ah! Never have a happy heart. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying good that is oriented toward God is is according to God's standards. It's the right thing. It's done in the right way for the right reason to bring glory and honor to him. When Paul says no one seeks God, I mean, I just said that there are some of you here who are seeking, trying to understand what this is. Uh, I, I think what Paul means is that no one seeks God purely for God. You know, all kinds of people seek God, but underneath it all, what they're really seeking is something to get from God. Nobody, apart from God's grace, nobody seeks God just to get God, just because he is beautiful and glorious and worthy. That's not something people do on their own. Romans 8 says it this way, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the point of total depravity. It just means that sin has so corrupted us that nobody does God-oriented good and nobody seeks God just to get God. It's interesting, when you start looking into the subject of poverty, you discover that it's this thing that has many layers. And, and the truth is, 
you find out is that everyone is poor. You and I are poor. Yes, we have more money than most of the world, but we have a different kind of poverty than perhaps they do. Our poverty is more comfortable, but it doesn't mean it's any less devastating to the image of God in us. Uh, When Helping Hurts, authors say this, until we embrace our mutual brokenness, meaning until we understand that we're all poor, our work with the poor is likely to do more harm than good. And what Paul is saying is until we embrace the pervasive influence of sin in each of us, our relationships, our work with each other is likely to do more harm than good because we won't see humanity as a level playing field before God. We'll, we'll be looking down our noses at one another, comparing. There'll be jealousy and envy and strife because we're all jockeying for position, but it is level. We're all poor. We're all pervasively influenced by sin. This is where Paul gets in his study of sin. You notice how he starts this text? He's talking to the Jews. He says, hey, are we, are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all. What? Do you realize how radical that is for a, a Jewish raised in the Pharisee tradition to say? Paul's whole life he's been taught to despise the Gentiles. To believe that because he's part of this club that, that he is in with God. And now he's saying, man, we are no better off than them. That's how radically the gospel has transformed him. I I deal with people's conflict a lot because I'm a pastor. Welcome to church. And so one of the things, or almost every single time, this conversation always happens. Somebody will be telling me their side of the story. And then I'll hear somebody else's side of the story, usually never together because they just want to keep things in confidence, which means they want to gossip. And so I'll say, have you considered what you bring to the table in in this conflict? Like, what are you talking about? They did it to me. No, 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 I know, but just have you thought about, because in every conflict, every party brings something to the table because we are pervasively influenced by sin. Meaning, every part, every word and action that I do is tainted somehow. And so, maybe I didn't do something directly, but I did indirectly. Maybe I didn't cultivate the right kind of relationship so that my wife could respond to me the way that I want her to respond to. I brought something to the table. Now, when people do that, when they take an honest look at themselves, they, they sort of forget their anger toward the other person. You know what happens almost every time? Their anger turns into understanding. Their hurt turns into compassion. And people can have a relationship again. Talking about how sin has corrupted us, every part of us, makes us more humble, more compassionate, more understanding, not less. This is why we've got to get our mind around the real problem. All right. Being under sin means that sin has made us guilty before God. It's corrupted every part of us. And finally, it means that we deserve punishment. I think that's pretty obvious by now, but there's, there's some good news in here. First, let's look at the text. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
sin has consequences. Punishment. There's going to be a day of final judgment, and on that day, we will have no excuses. Every mouth will be shut up, finally. God's standards will be held. His plumb line will be laid down, and we will all be measured up against it, and everyone will fall short. We all are guilty, and we all deserve punishment. Now, I want you to see here the good news in punishment. The punishment points us to the cure that we really need. Think about just original sin in the garden with Adam and Eve. When sin came into the world, God punished it, punished it, but he didn't punish it just for punishment's sake. Like if it was just about punishment, he would have destroyed Adam and Eve and everything else. But instead, he, he doesn't destroy the world, he goes about restoring it. He doesn't squash Adam and Eve. He talks to them and makes clothes for them. They had consequences, bad ones, real bad. But the punishment was a means of pointing them to the promise. Adam and Eve uh, walked with God in the cool of the day. This is before sin. They, They worked with God. They had a project going. They, they were totally open with God because they were totally secure in his love. But when they sinned and they knew they were guilty and they were corrupted with shame, what did they do? They ran from God. They hid from him. This is what people in broken relationships do. They, they don't want to make eye contact. They want to avoid each other. This is the devastation of sin. It's not just that we are guilty or we are corrupt. We're separated from God. The relationship that we were made for has been betrayed and ruined. And the fact that God doesn't just wipe us out in punishment speaks to that. It means, look, we're not just robots that he can destroy and start over. We're we're people made in his image and he wants relationships. So he doesn't wipe us out. He sets consequences in place so that we might be turned back to him. This is the story of humanity. Look at the words in this text. The orientation toward God or the disorientation. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. You see what's happening? Everybody's hid. Everybody wants to make eye contact with God anymore. Because something's not right. Our sickness is the heartbreak of loss. We lost fellowship with God and now we're totally lost in the world that he made for us. Our guilt means that we need pardon. Our corruption means that we need to be cleansed or transformed. Our punishment means that we are estranged from God and we need to be reconciled. We need relationship. Talking about punishment helps us understand the glory of reconciliation. Let me just read uh, a text from Romans 5, which we're going to get to in a few weeks. For while we were still weak... That is helpless in our sin. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Didn't wipe him out, died for him. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God 
by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you see what he's saying? The joy of salvation comes from understanding the depths from which we were reconciled, the punishment that we deserved, and the reconciliation in Christ that we got. Praise God. Rejoice. But if you never looked at that, if you just wanted to avoid and focus on the positive and not understand the punishment we deserve, you would not get the joy of grace. Isn't it the best when someone knows everything about you and you know they know and they still love you anyway? That's where Paul is taking us. He's hammering home the point that we are under sin because he wants us to be able to experience the joy of what it means to be under grace. When uh, my youngest son Holden was younger, whenever he would do something wrong, he has a, he has a real sensitive conscience and he would just take off upstairs because he, he knew he had displeased dad and he would go upstairs and he would hide in his closet. Because at some age, they still think that if, if they can't see you, you can't see them. So you'd hide behind the clothes. And I would wait a little while, you know, and then I'd start walking up the stairs. And he can hear me coming. Like, he hears the f- footsteps coming. And there's this moment of fear in his life. Because he doesn't know why I'm coming. He doesn't know if I'm coming to punish or to pursue. He will only know that I'm coming to pursue if he comes out. The only way he can experience the real reason I'm coming up there to reconcile is if he comes out. If he comes into the light and he looks me in the eye. In that moment, if he starts making a bunch of excuses and justifying himself, he's not going to get the reconciliation that he wants. He might get some more punishment, right? Now, I am going to give consequences. Because otherwise, what, what would my word mean if there were no consequences to disobeying it? But that's not the primary consideration going up there. The primary consideration is to be reconciled. I I don't want my son to live in shame. I don't want him to be isolated. I don't want him to be afraid of me in that way. I want him to be reconciled to me. Some of you uh, feel disconnected from God. Some of you have that moment of fear. Like if God showed up in your life, you, you don't know if he would be there to punish you or to pursue you. And what's helpful about looking at the bad news like this, considering the, just the scope and the depth of sin, is to experience that delight when we find out that God has come to pursue us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, the people hiding in the closet in their shame. Will there be consequences for your sin? Yes. God going to wipe you out? No. What do you do? Like in that moment when God's come and he says, where are you? See, God went looking for Adam and Eve. There was punishment, but there was also promise of one to come. He promised them one who would pay the penalty for their sin, that their guilt could be removed. He promised them one whose blood would cleanse them from all unrighteousness. He promised them one who would suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That is, he would take on the punishment we deserve so that he could bring us to God. 
When I go up there to find Holden, it is to bring him to myself. When Jesus comes looking for you, it is to bring you to God in his presence. And in that moment, if you start babbling with your excuses, justifying, spinning, trying to be better than you really are, your mouth will be shut up. You better shut up now as opposed to that day. Because if you shut up now, then you can put yourself in a position to just receive. You can lay down your pride so that you might lift your hands to the name above all names. You can have the coldness of your heart exposed so that you might feel the warmth of his grace. In that moment, when you don't know if he's come to pursue or to punish, you know you're guilty, you know you're corrupt, you know you deserve it, all you can do is cast yourself upon his mercy and see how much he loves you. So here's what you do. You hold on to Jesus and nothing else for your righteousness. And those who hold on to him and boast in nothing else, he gives them the right to be called children of God. And now you're God's child. Now he comes to reconcile. Now you stand before him pardoned and clean and totally accepted. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.